The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So before I offer this last talk on the theme of the week, self, mindful of oneself, ourselves, uh, there's a couple of announcements. One is that I thought at the end of uh, today at 7.45 here in California that um, I could stay here on YouTube for a while. And if you have any questions you'd like to make uh, around what I've been teaching or something else, I could take for a while. We can just do a little Q&A session. And I'll talk a little bit about how we'll do that uh, at the end. And um, I apologize for a few weeks ago that uh, I used the wrong Zoom account for us here on Fridays to have a community meeting after one of these sessions. And we'll do one next time I'm here, uh, uh, maybe on a Friday, maybe. I'll be gone for the next two f- uh, weeks, uh, taking a vacation. And um, so uh, next week, uh, Nikki Murgafori will be back. And the following week, uh, Diana Clark will be back. Wonderful teachers here at IMC. And in um, and then uh, in terms of community meetings, uh, we're going to have a community meeting for the Sunday morning group on uh, on on Zoom this Sunday at uh, after the Sunday morning Dharma talk. So if some of you like to join uh, and if it's kind of be more connected to this IMC community, uh, you could come then on Sunday. That uh, the meetings at ten thirty, and the information is uh, on the calendar. Um, for Sunday morning. So, this question of uh, what is the self, who are we, is a very profound question and a very uh, rich question that is multifaceted and and. Uh, doesn't lend itself, especially in the English-speaking world, uh, to a singular idea, a singular um, concept even of what self is. Um, I think psychologists, uh, 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 neuropsychologists, uh, people have kind of people have been looking for philosophers have been looking for this self. Uh, what is the self, and trying to define it, and it's a and to a great extent, it's key, the people keep coming back that it's very hard to define. And perhaps lots of modern researchers are coming up with the kind of the Buddhist idea that um, there is no self. Uh, it rather, what we are is a, a conglomeration of many different mental forces that operate, and uh, or f- physical and mental forces that operate, that have some way in which they get um, put together in some, uh, f- some feeling of unified self or uh, central self or something, but that uh, to really investigate deeply and really kind of explore what that is, it begins to uh, unravel and begins to show itself as being made made up of many different subparts that are arising and passing and permanent changing and flux. And um, so there are some modern researchers who will say such things as there is no self inherently. The Buddha didn't say that explicitly. He didn't say there is no self. In fact, as I quoted earlier, um, he thought that was actually a quagmire, a kind of quicksand to kind of go into that notion that there is no self. 
But he did uh, say that uh, there are ideas of self, there are uh, doctrines of self, there are philosophies of self that exist. Uh, and he said that any doctrine of self, any philosophy of self, um, uh, will involve some degree of suffering. Uh, there's something about the... Uh, 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 the coming together and holding something, a view, an idea, this is what the self is, that uh, makes it very difficult to, um, to really be completely free and open and, and um, with infinite possibilities and allow for the full range of uh, what our psychophysical functioning might be like. So in this regard, I think of a uh, kind of little bit, um, uh, you know, as a metaphor, maybe a slightly humorous metaphor, maybe. Uh, one definition I have for self is that self is wind drag. Uh, you put your, you know, you have a lot of wind drag when something's moving down, you're going on the bike, biking along, it'll slow you down. So it, itself is what slows us down. And um, the, uh, or self is a coagulation, uh, something that's fluid, and then it uh, becomes solid as it coagulates. And so uh, the fluidity of who we are and how we function uh, gets somehow solidified and tightened into something. And that uh, tightening or that coagulation into something called self can feel like this is really something here. After all, it feels solid or it feels central, it feels well localized. But uh, it turns out when in mindfulness practice, if we go in and look more deeply, we find that that thing that anything that we identify or hold on to self is actually made up made up of subparticles, sub not particles, sub components, and um, that are fluid and dynamic, and um, and and uh, it kind of breaks down the idea of a solid, any kind of solid idea, central idea or essential idea. This is who I am. And um, so. But the Buddha didn't ever wanted to go say there is no self because that itself is a kind of coagulation. That itself is a becomes an idea that we hold ourselves by. And uh, what the Buddha was looking for was a freedom from suffering. And um, and so this freedom uh, is the you know that's what's being looked for. That's what's being championed. And the goal to that in doing vipassana practice, insight meditation, involves having three insights. And what these insights are understood to be are uh, aspects of characteristics of our experience. Uh, so they're characteristics as opposed to things themselves. They're, they characterize our experience. And those three insights are not biographical. So they, and they're not considered personal insights that are only true for yourself. Those are very valuable to understand something, how you would tick and what happened to us early in life and what our personal beliefs are and how that influences our way of living. That's part of the value of mindfulness is to highlight that. But the insight of inside meditation is, is not personal in nature, but rather it's understanding the building blocks for all experience, building blocks of what we call personal experience. And so it's uh, to see something universal, something that's universally true for all human beings. And that is that all experiences we have are somehow characterized by being inconstant, 
as being uh, dukkha, stressful, suffering, unsatisfactory, characterized in some way, and uh, and that uh, and all experiences are uh, not self. So whatever we actually experience, if you look deeply at it, uh, that experience, we say, well, that's not really the self. That's not really the self. And um, and so, you know, the more we go into our direct experience with strong mindfulness practice, we start having this insight that, oh, this is not self. This is not self. So not self is not a belief that we have to believe. It's not a philosophy. You don't have to hear the teaching of not self and then try to make yourself believe it or argue with it because it doesn't make sense. That's not really the point of it. It's not philosophy. It's not something to believe but rather it's something to see, something that's revealed in the course of time as mindfulness becomes strong. When mindfulness is really strong, concentration is strong, then it becomes clear that our experience we have uh, in the experiences, well, this is not self, this is not self. And I emphasize this wording of it to make a point. When I say this is not self, it's always about this, it's always about something particular turns out in deep meditation practice that all the different things that are can be called a direct particular experience that's used as a building blocks for conceptual understandings of who we are and what life is, all the individual building blocks of direct experience, um, we see very clearly, oh, that's not self. There's no, um, we didn't, don't plan it, we don't uh, intend it, it doesn't it just kind of arises without any will or planning or any association with any central control tower, or central authority, or place of being. And um, and even you know one of the most powerful places of personal freedom is around personal choice. And some people want to say the ability to choose affirms that there is a self. So that's a philosophy or an idea that comes out of even seemingly comes out of experience. But the, um, in deep meditation, uh, even the, even the, it's quite fascinating when the mind is really quiet and really sees what's arising in the mind, that even this idea of choice uh, doesn't quite seem to be personal, doesn't quite seem to be, uh, this is who I am. And, um, and uh, it just, there, there is, is there really choice if the choice is happening kind of without what you think is self choosing. So it gets kind of fascinating, this whole world, but we don't get lost in it when we're doing deep meditation practice, which is really where the not-self teaching really comes alive, because that's just kind of wind drag. That's just kind of getting caught up in ideas. And what becomes clearer and clearer is that this this experience, this is not self, this is not self, uh, reveals tremendous freedom. Freedom from selfing, freedom from the attachments that are so often associated with self. And, um, and to experience this is not self, this is not self in this deep revelatory way, um, uh, uh, it, and then we can look around and nothing in our experience in that moment, no self is found. And some people will say they're having a no self experience. And that's completely appropriate to call it that in a sense, but it's a little bit abstract What's dangerous is to come out of that deep meditation and come to the conclusion, kind of like a philosophy, 
there is no self. The Buddha didn't say that. Uh, and, uh, and it kind of lends itself to all kinds of philosophical and personal difficulties if we start saying there is no self. We don't say there is a self, but there is personal responsibility. There is personal uh, self-awareness, personal awareness, I might want to say. Uh, there is personal choice at a different level or, of how the mind operates and how it sees. But to really have experienced this not-self uh, insight means that we come back from that experience uh, l- much less inclined to get attached, much less inclined to be involved in greed, hate, and delusion, and much more inclined to have a clear sense, a feel for liberation, for freedom, for the emptiness of self. And uh, that emptiness of self, that sense of lack of self uh, in I- as an experience um, to step into that emptiness, to relax and open to that possibility that we don't have to always be measuring and thinking and feeling and deciding about things about self, that uh, we can um, step through that, uh, into that emptiness, and the tradition calls it the door of emptiness. And that door, step through that door, allows for some of the deepest letting go that's possible. And that's called liberation and freedom. And we come out of that experience appreciating that generally uh, this uh, idea of self that is so important for many people, generally it's a bit overrated. And and, uh, we're much better off not to give it such a high priority and obsession that often our culture really supports us to, to have. That freedom from self doesn't mean that we have to kind of discard everything that we might call self, um, because as I said, there's many different viewpoints of what this self is. But um, but we now we can hold it all lightly, wisely, and ethically, uh, without kind of operating with a self that uh, is devoted or committed to greed, hatred, and delusion, to attachments. So that is um, my attempt to talk about this topic of self and not self. I hope it was clarifying over these days. And um, I'll be back here for in, um, you know, in a couple of weeks. And uh, I've been kind of doing a series now on mindfulness, you know, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of uh, thinking, mindfulness of emotions, mindfulness of the body, and now mindfulness of self here. And... Um, and I thought that when I come back, uh, it might be interesting to do a, a week on mindfulness of nibbana, mindfulness nirvana of liberation itself, and um, and that might be interesting. Five days, so um, so that's what I'm hoping. So thank you very much. And as I said, now I can stay here a little bit. And uh, if you want to ask some questions in the chat, and um, I'm going to treat the chat as. Um, as a as a uh, basket that you drop your questions into, and uh, just kind of kind of pull them out randomly. In the past, I've tried to uh, fo- read them in order because just out of you know respect for each one. But I think that uh, it proves too hard with all the chats, and it moves so quickly in moving between them. So I'll try to go you know go around and get them. But um, but please allow me to just let it be a basket that I pull the questions out of.
How do you sit selflessly with pain and bodily malfunction? Yes, it's actually easier to sit with pain and bodily misfunction if there's not a lot of selfing going on. Uh, I learned that one of my first lessons when I started sitting retreats, I was doing Zen retreats and you weren't allowed to move during the 45 minute sitting and when I was sitting repeatedly through the day that way, uh, I had a tremendous amount of knee pain and uh, it wasn't really limber enough and stuff. And um, and I could see that um, I, I was very clear at some point that if I had self-pity, uh, there, I think the little micro-muscles around the knees got tighter and the pain got worse. And if I had no self-pity, it was easier to be with the pain. So self is often a magnet for fears, a magnet for our, um, judgments, comparisons, ideas, what should and shouldn't be. The self is not an innocent kind of little thing that's just sitting quietly and just watching what's going on. The self has a lot to do with reactivity. And uh, it's often a seat, the house of reactivity. And so if we're really caught up in this notion of self, uh, then pain and bodily malfunction can be a lot more difficult. If there's less self, less need to be a particular kind of self and to always measure ourselves as this is the kind of self I need to be, then um, it can be easier to be with pain. It's not, you know, it's not a breeze to be with pain. I want to respect the difficulty of it. But it actually can be a lot easier if we're not doing a lot of selfing around it. If reincarnation in karma, something continues ongoing in this conglomerate, conglomerate, yes. Um, the Buddhists don't tend to use the word reincarnation, they use the word rebirth. I think because reincarnation for Buddhists suggests that there's something that's really specific that t- travels between one birth and the other. Rebirth, uh, for Buddhists at least, is supposed to be the idea that there is no thing that travels, but rather it's a momentum, kind of like a wave that goes across an ocean. The wave doesn't actually, there's no water that travels with the wave you know, across the ocean. The wave is the, going, the momentum that's pushing, like billiard balls, pushing these particles of water up and down. And, um, and so... Um, it's the up and downness, the momentum that goes across the ocean. And um, so Buddhists say a little bit that way more about rebirth. And the karma is the momentum, what creates that momentum is the idea. Um, but it's a little bit hard to uh, understand. I mean, Buddhists don't, I never felt that Buddhists really under, explained very well uh, what the mechanism of rebirth is and how it really fits with this teaching of not-self. Um, but maybe the teaching of not-self wasn't meant to explain too many things. Uh, we're philosophers, human beings often, so we're always trying to explain things and make things line up in an explanatory way. And perhaps this freedom that the Buddhism is looking for doesn't need everything explained. And, um, and so we discover this door of not-self for the purpose of freedom, we don't have to use that experience of not-self then to build explanations about how things work. Does the ego fight one to achieve freedom or does it diminish as time goes on or rear its head again and again? Um, Yeah, the ego. I think the attachment to self, the self-definitions we have, the... the, um, 
yes, uh, I think that the the desires we have, the aversions we have, the uh, lends itself to a lot of impatience, a lot of restlessness, a lot of uh, attachment to have things being a certain way. And so anything that threatens those attachments, threaten those ideas of self that we hold on to, then there's a rebellion, there's a protest, there's running away, there's frustration, there's, um, 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 you know, there can be anger, there can be all kinds of things. And sometimes there can be fantasy that we go into. And they can be very convincing. And so there are ways in which we get tricked out of the path of liberation um, because of, you know, maybe what we call the ego. And uh, so we have to be very attentive and alert uh, to really see how all this works in our minds. And that's one of the benefits of developing mindfulness as we get more and more um, uh, clear, we see more clearly what's really going on in there. And so we are wiser about it and freer about it. Would you speak more about respect? It seems very conditional to me. I understand self-pride, vanity, compassion, love, and care, but I have a hard time understanding self-respect. The um, well, you know, this again. It's uh, it's such a um, it's such a um, uh, you know quicksand or you know labyrinth of challenges when we start using the word self. People have so many different references for it, understandings of it, philosophies of it, um, that, um, and different cultures maybe even have different understanding and use that word differently. So uh, there are some people who say that, you know, there's a tendency sometimes in Buddhism to be very shy of using the word self, so self-respect. The, um, uh, but, that's why the talk I gave on Monday was to emphasize that um, the personhood that who we are, that uh, there's something here that we become a person of respect. We become someone with a certain dignity and value. Uh, we are valuable beings. And, um, and, uh, but, uh, but because of the word self, it becomes, it's a magnet for all this luggage, all these cultural, personal, familial ideas of what a self should be, what it is, what the right self is, the wrong self is. So it's a kind of a very complicated word. So, um, so, but to use it, you know, some of these words very lightly, uh, self-respect is uh, the app, is the ability to be present, to see clearly, be present without uh, disrespect, without animosity, demeaning, criticism, um, feeling that we're inadequate somehow. It's the ability to be present in a clear and dignified way without any feel, diminishing of the value of who we are. That's kind of my definition of it. Uh, so I hope that was you know useful. After being free of self, what is left? Um, what is left is um, is uh, our ability to respond to the world without greed, hate, and delusion, and uh, and the idea the, and the response to the world uh, is just what the system is set up for here. Uh, once we drop greed, hate, and delusion, it's more the surface of the mind, the surface of the heart, and when that surface crust is dissolved, 
then the depth of who we are has a chance to kind of feel and experience what's happening in this world. And uh, the depth of who we are has a, a place where we have um, the opposite of fight and flight. It's where we approach and soothe, where we step forward with care and compassion and kindness and friendliness. And uh, so the absence of self, uh, clinging, allows for that deeper wellspring of, uh, of attention, of sensitivity, and goodwill to operate. Exactly how it's going to operate for different people is very personal. Um, uh, we'd, we should be very careful not to make it any kind of essential idea of what a person should be like when they are free, liberated from self. Um, I think what we're free to do then is for our own deep personality and our uniqueness to come forward and be what it is. And one person might, two people, ten people, a million people, each of them might have a very different expression of what freedom looks like or how their deep sensitivity and care for the world gets expressed. And it might be radically different in ways. And so um, it's, I like the idea that uh, we want to give people who are free the freedom to really be who they are and to trust it, or yourself, who you are. Yeah, is the arising of self considered within the aggregate of sankhara? Yeah, probably. That uh, that's where the mental formations. It's a formations construct in the mind. It wouldn't be anywhere else. That idea, that f- form. I guess it could be a little bit sanya. It could be um, part of you know, recognition of things. How to approach self-loathing with love without engorging the self? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, um, it, uh, you know, it's a little bit hard to answer such an important question like that in uh, just, you know, without more information. But uh, sometimes what helps is to uh, feel uh, the heartbreak of self-loathing feel the suffering of it and how painful it is to be that way. And sometimes when really feeling the, the pain of it, something can break. Maybe, we, maybe something, you know, the heart breaks, the broken heart of it. Oh, and only then do we soften and relax when the tears come and we feel, you know, how, how sad and how difficult that is to live that way. Um, and the other is to, another way is to... Uh, begin actually doing the opposite and uh, to offer metta to oneself, loving kindness and compassion, to actually engage in that, both you know, as a meditation practice, but also with kind acts, to actually live and do things that expresses, or even if you don't feel like you want to be, have gener- self-generosity or self-love, uh, sometimes it's, you can just act your way to it by treating yourself the way and f- that way and feeling benefits. And then the third thing, because it's such an important one, is um, is to um, is to um, talk to people, friends, someone really wise and that you really trust, and just kind of very simply just uh, talk about it. Kind of like maybe it's an unfortunate choice of words, but maybe a little bit like a confession, just a little bit opening up, and sometimes opening up around self-loathing can break the trance. Can, like, we can hear ourselves speak about it and we realize, wait a minute, may, you know, maybe I don't really believe this or maybe it's not really true or maybe it kind of breaks out of the shell 
to talk about it. Because sometimes self-talk is very hard to become free of. The notion that thoughts are not self, I can see not giving them authority, not picking them up, but to disown them as, as not self, I need help with this. Yes, this is again, it's, it's so hard with this notion of self and uh, what we're talking about here. But anything that we cling to or hold on to this as the self, uh, at least for that, we understand that clinging to it, the holding on to it um, is painful, is not worth, not worth doing. And it turns out that if you really focus on the non-clinging aspect, not clinging to self, that most ideas of self that people operate on, under do in fact have some clinging involved with it. And this shedding of clinging, shedding of clinging, is part of, um, is, you know, is part of this uh, freedom we begin discovering for ourselves. And, um, and I think that we don't, dis, uh, we don't want to disown anything in the sense of we have, to the degree to which we have choice, about how to relate to our thoughts and our impulses and our desires, it's um, uh, we want to be able to do that wisely. In deep meditation, the choice is to leave them alone. The choice is not to be involved, to let them just be there. And then we can see them as not self. But in ordinary life, um, uh, we have to, if we don't have, you know, we have to actually choose to do things. We don't just leave things alone. And uh, and so we have to be res- we, are, we are responsible for what we think um, and how we think them and tracking them and uh, questioning them and and uh, deciding f- you know how to listen to them in the right way. All this is an important part of who we are. There's no need to disown anything. Um, but uh, and that's why it's very very important not to take this not self teaching that's uh, uh, out of its out of its native Buddhist context. And the obvious thing to do, it's so easy for us human beings to do this, is to hear these teachings and then want to apply them outside their context. Well, if this teaching is true, it's such a Buddhist emphasizes so much, then how does it work here and here and here and here? Um, it's really a, um, it's not to be, I like to think it's not to be used to be applied. Use your common sense in how you live your life. But as we have a deeper and deeper experience of how this revelation, this is not self, this is not self, as that becomes strong in Vipassana practice, some of that then changes our view about how we live our ordinary life. And we start seeing that even our thoughts, there's a way in which they are not self, they arise. So there's no shame or no grandeur for the thoughts that we have. But we still have to be careful about how we pick them up and how we're involved with them. And if we don't automatically attribute them to the self, then sometimes they're less sticky. And if they're less sticky, we have more choice and we can handle them more wisely and good. These mornings are wonderful. So are they not... Oh, so far they are not penetrating the density of selfing that manifests during the day. Can you speak honestly about what's necessary to actually end our suffering? So the density of selfing that manifests during the day. So if you're motivated to really penetrate the density, the coagulation the, that we have around self, the attachments to it, um, the, um, 
I mean, there's, there's, you know, it depends, you know, you know, what you've been doing. So if, um, um, if, um, I mean, this is the whole path of Buddhism, is to really become free of the, of clinging, including the clinging to self, uh, not to come to a new philosophy of self, but the clinging to self, the attachment to it, and what's left after that. Um, you know, a lot of Buddhists don't want to say that that's self anymore, but they are still very, you know, self-responsible in English language. So, but it's really dense. Uh, so, the deep meditation practice—that's the vipassana way. It really, really requires deep, concentrated mindfulness. That the kind of mindfulness or uh, attention that's usually for most people only available on retreat, uh, where you really are practicing for a long time. This is where the deep insight of vipassana, this deep insight into the context for really experiencing this not-self, is most relevant. If a person has done a lot of retreats and feels like they haven't, you know, penetrated that, then they should um, either talk to a teacher or some teachers and get some advice and ideas what's going on, um, or it might be that there's other modalities that can penetrate through the shell of self that uh, maybe for some people work better than this meditation path. This detachment from self, dispassion, disillusion have negative implications in English. Wish there were a word that imparts the positive nature of these efforts, states, and intentions. Yes, the word detachment, uh, I think that uh, I think that most Western Dharma teachers who speak English uh, kind of sort of Buddhist English don't use the word detachment very well because of its negative associations uh, but rather use the word non-attachment and that, the idea that that doesn't quite have the same negative kind of distancing or indifference that detachment can, can suggest um, dispassion um, uh, yeah so some people are fine with the word dispassion and disillusion uh, but I, know, I agree that it can have very negative Associations for some people, um, the um, the word passion apparently originally comes from the word suffering, the passion of Christ. So dispassion is to end suffering. In Buddhism, in Buddhist English, dispassion means um, the absence of uh, very strong craving, like lust. Uh, passion here is not seen as being a zest for life or enthusiasm for life, but rather passion is kind of a, a passion for you know kind of a greed. Uh, and disillusion, I think that uh, maybe we should adopt that word more. I don't think that Buddhists use it too much, disillusion. Um, the, um, we use the word disenchantment a lot, but they both kind of suggest the, the idea of not, being in, not living in illusion, not living in enchantment, and um, not living in delusion, uh, disillusion. But I think I appreciate this very much and the idea, for, the idea of positive nature of these efforts, states, and intentions I think is very good. And, you know, the primary one in Buddhism is freedom, liberation. And um, sometimes they use the word happiness or great happiness. And sometimes they use the word peace, ease, to live with ease, to live with peace that doesn't have the agitation that comes with attachment, the agitation that comes with craving, the agitation that comes from living in illusion or delusion. Yeah, it's a, a very good point. Where do thoughts come from? 
Well, where do thoughts come from? Thoughts, thoughts arise from the combi- combined interrelated functioning of the whole planet. Everything contributes to the rising of a thought. Uh, and I say that in that kind of, you know, kind of a little bit phantasmagoric way is that um, uh, the ex- it's fascinating, the birth of a thought. And, uh, to, uh, you know, if the mind is really quiet and really still, to see a thought arise and, uh, and not see it coming and just suddenly arise without any... Sometimes we see that thoughts arise clearly because of something prompts the thought. And we can see, oh, I thought X because someone told me about Y and, you know, and I was reminded of something. Or, or you know, if I, um, if I uh, say the phrase, um, the hills are alive with the sound of, many people of a certain age would fill in that, those lyrics of a song and the thought music would appear. And uh, so where did that come from? Well, it was kind of like prompted by my silly example. So you can sometimes kind of see the cause and conditions that precede the birth of a thought. But sometimes it just arises kind of completely without any seeming cause and conditions. And uh, it's, um, it, you know, what, what is the combined forces and conditions that allow the thought to arise? It's fascinating. And, uh, but what's more fascinating is how then it's hard to take that thought as this is myself. The thought music, if some of you know the lyrics of that song, then um, was that word music appearing in your mind? Um, Is that you? Were you that, is that really who you are? Or uh, did you have a choice in that word appearing? And did you plan it? And, you know, is it any different than the breeze of being felt across (coughs) your skin? That uh, you know, it's, it's the, our mind, some parts of the mind just operate without really kind of an automatic. So these are fascinating questions and uh, about uh, you know, self, the birth of thoughts, and um, the idea in doing Buddhist practice when we really get into the flow of it is um, is not to get distracted by uh, questions like that, because the task is to really uh, have very clear mindfulness about what's actually happening. Uh, in the moment, as as we're experiencing it, so that um, we come to this place of freedom. So um, I hope these are my these answers are good. I hope this has been interesting, and I appreciate all the questions. They are, um, you know, it shows me how important it is to have an exchange. It's a little bit the limitation of this YouTube, or big limitation of this YouTube time and world that we have to live with a little bit. And um, and I hope that I look forward to the time that we can be more in person and also have more dialogue. So um, thank you, and I'll see you in a few weeks, or maybe Sunday if some of you come there. <laughs>